Terry Tucker is a retired police sergeant trained by the FBI in tactical negotiation who served on the Cincinnati police SWAT team for eight years. He is a motivational speaker who believes in the power of a good story to motivate, inspire, and help people lead their uncommon and extraordinary lives. Terry is an absolute warrior who I had the honor of speaking with for today's episode, and we dove into some extremely compelling topics, not in the least of which includes how instrumental family, faith, and friends are to Terry's life and literal survival throughout many of the trials and tribulations of his job and his life. I was truly touched by our conversation and hope that all of you can take away powerful lessons in negotiation and relationships with a good dose of perspective as well. Hi, Terry. Thank you so much for being here. I'm so excited to talk to you today. So we can jump right into it. Um, Our listeners have heard a bit about your background. First and foremost, I wanted to ask you, your time serving as a SWAT negotiator for the police in Cincinnati and being trained by the FBI's hostage negotiation team is exceptional. What drew you to this type of work and why did you feel that you would be a good fit for this role? That's a great question. And Connie, thanks for having me on. I'm really looking forward to talking with you. Um, yeah, you know, I, my, my first two jobs were in the business world. And, you know, then I make this major pivot in my life at 37 years old and become a police officer. And I've always wanted to be associated with the best. I've always tried to be the best in whatever I did. And SWAT, Special Weapons and Tactics, those are usually the the best officers with the best training and the best equipment. So when I had an opportunity, when there was an opening on the negotiating team, I put in for it. And so I had to do, you know, I had to do all the physical fitness stuff. I had to meet with the psychologist, I had to take psychological exams. And then there was the team met, the current team, and it was sort of an all or nothing. If it was, well, one person says, no, I don't want Terry on the team. You didn't get on the team. Oh, wow. So it had to be I didn't unanimous. know that. Wow. Wow. Yeah. Okay. It had to be unanimous to get on because we work so closely with each other, you know, and, you know, we work at three o'clock in the morning. And, and you know, so, I mean, there's, you know, you're tired, you're irritable, it's cold, it's raining, you know, all that kind of stuff that, that's going on. So you really want to make sure that you have somebody who enhances the team, not detracts from them. So when they had that opening, I I put in for it, did all those things and was lucky enough uh, to get onto it. Why did I feel I I would make a good negotiator? I I didn't know if I would. It it just seemed to be work that I wanted to do that, that I, I, we had great training. We had a psychologist that was actually attached to our, our team and things like that. So it was, it was more of, I want to be part of the best. This is part of the best. And hopefully I can learn what I need to learn to uh, to actually be good at this. And, and I did it for almost four years. Yeah, I mean, it's absolutely exceptional. And it sounds like relationships also played a big role in, you know, the team dynamic. I mean, just hearing that, you know, even one person on the team could say, hey, I don't, you know, trust this person or feel safe with this person. What was the relationship building like on the team? I'm super curious on that point. Yeah, I, I mean, you know, the Cincinnati Police Department, Cincinnati is a big city, but it's not that big. And so, you know, you you have a tendency to interact with officers, whether it's at in-service training or, you know, at PT tests or at the range or whatever. So, you, you know, you get to know people and and you get a reputation. And, and just like everything else, you get a reputation 
by the work that you do. And so, you know, at the time I was in the drug unit, I, and you're going to laugh at this. I was a six foot eight inch undercover drug, drug investigator. That's incredible. <laughs> yeah. But that's, that's kind of another story, but you know, you're, you're known by the work you do. I mean, do right. you do shoddy work or do you go the extra mile and, and, and maybe help the investigator out by collecting some evidence or, mm-hmm. or something like that. And again, I, I loved what I did. So I, I enjoyed Okay, I'll collect this evidence. I'll I'll go a little bit extra in this report, maybe interview right. a witness that an investigator will interview down the road. And that way they've got something to go on and things like that. So you get to the point where you're known by your work. And so it was like, yeah, you're you're good at what you do. We think that would be a good transition to do as a negotiator. And and you will you won't cut corners, you know, you, you won't mm-hmm. say, Oh, I'm not coming or anything like that. You will you will immerse yourself in in being part of the team. And that's that's really what we did. I mean, we we would go out afterwards, you know, sometimes we would get together for barbecues and things like that. We just, we liked being with each other. They were all good people. That's amazing. And did you have any role models at the time? Like, was there someone that you really looked up to that you learned from at the time? Not so much, to be honest with you. I, I'll, I'll give you a kind of a, a funny story. My first negotiation, and and, and we, we trained by basically doing scenarios. We practiced right different different scenarios, things we read about or that were in the news or that happened at other departments. This was a very simple one. My very first negotiation, hostage taker and a hostage behind a locked door. I spent the entire negotiation talking to the hostage. Wow. You know, and they were kind of like, you, you, you realize you're supposed to talk to the person who took the hostage. <laughs> yeah. you know, I, I mean, I was like, yeah, I knew that, but the hostage was was kind of yelling and, you know, right. help me. And, all, and I just felt compassion in that regard. So it was like, well, okay, I, I guess maybe I'm I'm going to have a big learning curve here to, to be good at, at, at this. <laughs> so yeah, I look back on it and realize I really didn't know anything about negotiating. Yeah, but that's a great beginner story. And I'm sure you learned a lot of lessons too. Like what were some of the biggest lessons that you learned, you know, during your training, but also kind of on the job that you maybe even take with you and put into practice in real life? I'd be really curious on that as well. Yeah. So when I when I first started as a negotiator, they gave us this um, formula and the formula was 738.55. And the formula basically was a breakdown of how we communicate with each other. So 7% of it is the words that we use. 38% of it is the tone of voice that we use with those words. And 55% of it is your body language and your facial expressions. So as police officers, 99% of what we did was face-to-face with another person. It was, you know, pulling them over to give them a ticket for running a stop sign or answering a radio run for a fight. It was always face-to-face. It was always talking to people. But as negotiators, what we lacked was that 55% because many times we were blocks away talking on the phone or best case scenario, you were behind a locked door and they would put up what they call ballistic blankets so that they would stop bullets if the person decided to shoot through the walls. And, and so you didn't have, you know, I could say something and I didn't see the person kind of roll their eyes like, oh, what an idiot. Right. I can't believe he said, you know, he said that. And, I, and, I, and I'm like, oh, okay. So a lot of times we we would try to have to, or, or we would have to figure things out, certainly based on what people were saying. But also try to figure it out based on what they were what they weren't saying and how they were saying it. And there were many times we'd be over here for 
two, three hours talking about something with the bar- barricaded person. And the real problem was over here. Right. But they hadn't developed the trust with us. And I think, you know, show about relationships. What's the most important thing in any relationship? Trust. You know, Absolutely. whether it's parent, child, whether it's husband, wife, boyfriend, girlfriend, you know, uh, boss, subordinate, do we trust each other? And, yeah. and building up that trust, there was a thing called tactical empathy. And that was basically, for example, okay, Connie, tell me, tell me what's going on. Tell me how we got to this point. Mm-hmm. Tell me what you're thinking and feeling. I want to understand you, right. not agree with you. You know, I may be negotiating with somebody who just killed three people. Of so course, I'm not going to yeah. agree with what you did, yeah. but I want to understand why you did what you did or what happened and things like that. And by developing that empathy, that is that is basically gaining trust with that person. Um, I'll give you one more. We would use how and what questions uh, to a person and we would stay away from why questions. Mm-hmm. And the reason we, st- we stayed away from why questions is because it sounds accusatory. Really, Connie, why did you do that? Oh, wait a minute. Is he accusing me of something? Is, you know, and the how and what questions, we, the person never really understood this, but that was that was basically engaging you, the hostage taker or the barricaded person to help me get you out safely. Mm-hmm. Well, Connie, how, how do you think this is going to end? Or how do you want this to end? Right. Okay, now all of a sudden your brain is starting to work with, oh, how, Oh, how, how do I want this? To, so now I've engaged you without you even realizing it yep. in helping me get you out safely. This is, it's so interesting because it's reminding me just on my end of the therapeutic process. You know, when someone comes to sit in your office and talk to you, first of all, what's not being said, just like you said, you know, like you said earlier, what's not being said is really what the therapist is looking out for. Like we are looking for what's not being said in the room. And often we'll also say like, who else is in the room with us? You know, is your, your mother, your ex, like what's going on here? Um, So what's not being said, that is so huge. And I really like that point of the questions that you're asking, why is accusatory, right? Why seems like you're demanding, you're demanding an answer, but you're expecting it to not be, you know, you're, you're already almost destroying it from the jump. Whereas how and what get your brain working or get their brain working. That's so, so interesting. Um, What I'll ask you now, could you share maybe one particular story from your time as a negotiator that maybe really, really touched you or really moved you in a way that was unexpected or just really impacted you? If there's like one that really stands out, we'd love to hear about it. I'll give you two stories. One one is an atypical story. None of them ever went this way, Uh, but it's kind of a funny story and this kind of a heavy topic. So throwing some humor into it sometimes can be can be fun. So this was an individual uh, who had taken his wife hostage. Mm -hmm. I happened to be working that night. I'm going to date myself really, really badly now, but we, we okay. carried pagers. We were not a full-time SWAT team. So when the pager went off, we would respond to the scene. I was a sergeant by this time and I was working that night. And so I was able to get to the scene pretty quickly. And I was the first person there from SWAT. And so I was talking to the officers and what's the deal? He's drunk. He's taking his wife hostage and he has a gun. Mm-hmm. Okay. Do you have him on the phone? Yes, we do. 
said, let me talk to him, please. So I get on the phone with him, talking to him for about 10 minutes. And again, going back to developing that tactical empathy, developing that trusting relationship. So you didn't you didn't come anywhere close to asking the person to, to let the hostage go or to come out. That was hours into the into the negotiation. Three, four, five, six hours, maybe you got to that point. But I just had a feeling with this guy. And so I said to him, what would it take for you to come out? Mm-hmm. And there was this long pause and he said, give me a beer. I, I said, if I got you a beer, do I have your word that you would let your wife go and you would come out safely? He said, do I have your word? I could drink it. I said, you have my word. You can drink it. Huh. And so I gave, he said, yeah, I'll, you give me the beer. I'll let my wife go. So I gave $5 to the officer. They got a beer. The tactical team put it on the front porch. I called them back. Said your beer's on the front porch, but you don't get it until your wife comes out safely right. and you come out with your hands up. He said, do I still have your word that I could I can drink it? I said, you absolutely do. So all of a sudden the front door flies open. Here comes his wife. Here he comes with his hands up. The oh tactical team handcuffs him, lets him drink his beer and off the jail he goes. Was and, he, and, well, I, can I venture a guess? Was he like a recovering alcoholic who just wanted like that, that beer? What was the reason behind that? He knew he was going to jail. I mean, Got he it. knew he he had done a dumb thing and yeah. he was going to go to jail because of it. So he wanted to have one more beer for the road, wow. so to speak. But, but the reason I tell that story is because we never lied to people. Of course, um, and, of course. But people would say to us, hey, I'll come out, but you got to promise me I'm not going to go to jail. Right. And we would have to say, well, when you that. do come out, you are going to go to jail. Yeah. And then we would try to deflect the conversation into something that was more positive. So yes. and and the reason we didn't lie it wasn't like we were real altruistic or anything like that. It was there was a very good chance. And this happened several times a year from now, two years from now, three years from now. We would be right back negotiating with that exact same person. Wow. And if they ever felt it's like, you know, Tucker, you lied to me. You lied to me the last time. Well, my credibility is done. You're going to have to bring in another negotiator, you know, to do that. So that was, you know, it, we we just didn't do it because we did. And, and a, a lot of times the problem doesn't go away. The underlying issue of why we were there doesn't go away. You yeah. know, they're, they're upset with their mother. Well, mom's still alive and mom's still irking mm-hmm. them on. So two years later, here we are back doing the same thing again. So that was one story. Okay, wait, before you even get to the next story, my my question, and it's so funny, I'm going to break your rule. I'm going to ask you why. Did you ever <laughs> did you ever find out or was there ever a why that came about from that story of why did he take his wife hostage? Do we have that information? Did you ever find out? We, we did from talking to his wife. He, he just got mad. She was She was upset that he was drinking and he was... It wasn't just drinking. He was heavily intoxicated. And so she was, you know, kind of on his case and he just got got mad. And so he like, you know, the heck with you threw her in the house, closed the door. It's like, go ahead, call the police. You know, she was like, I'm going to call the police. Go ahead. You know, there's a power struggle there. Totally. You know, they've been married like 20 years. You know, it's just he's he's nagging. She's nagging. And it it was it it was stupid. I mean, yeah. you know, but that's the problem. You get in over your head. Yes. And now all of a sudden the police have surrounded your house and you're talking to a negotiator. Yeah. Oh, yeah. That's uh, that's real bad news. And tell us the second story. So the second story is, is a lot more serious. Um, 
But I think it just kind of goes to show you sort of, you know, if you believe in God or you believe in, in fate yeah. of the universe. So this is an individual who decided he wanted to take his own life, commit suicide. So it started probably seven, eight o'clock at night. He mm -hmm. slit his wrists. Wow. That didn't work. For some reason, he thought it would be a good idea to turn the gas on in his oven and stick his head in the oven like that was going to somehow wow. kill him. Well, that didn't work either. Right. Then he calls a relative and the relative was smart enough to call us. And so now we have him surrounded in his house, but he's got a gun now. Mm -hmm. He's threatening to kill himself. It's probably three o'clock in the morning and I'm talking to him. And in all honesty, I think I just warmed down. He was just exhausted, yeah. you know, from what he'd been through. And he said, you know, Terry, I really want to come out. I said, good. I said, you come out. I said, I'll come down to the to your house, to the scene, and we'll talk face to face. Good. He said, yeah, I really like that. Really like that. Good. Okay. So I said, put the gun down. I said, but take the phone with you. When you get outside, the tactical team will tell you what to do. Just do what they tell you to do. They are going to handcuff you. They're probably going to put you on the ground. Just do what they tell you to do. Okay, no problem. Hangs up the phone, which isn't uncommon because we're conditioned that when a, a conversation is over, we, yeah. we, hang, we hang up the phone. About 30 seconds later, the ta one of the tactical officers comes on the, on the radio and says, we heard a gunshot. Oh, no. I thought, you got to be kidding me. Yeah. You shot yourself. He did. Shot himself in the head. But he shot himself at such an angle that the bullet went in at his temple right here, okay. underneath the skin, around his scalp, around his skull, and came out the other side. Incredibly bloody, but in terms of seriousness, not, wow. not a very serious wound. So here's a guy three times attempted to kill himself. You know, I mean, when it's your time, it's your time. Wow. When it's not your time, it's, it's not, your, not time, your time. It's not your time. No matter yeah. what you do. Wow, that is that is that is really like moving. Yeah, that's that's and it definitely makes you think, right? I'm sure you've had many, many instances on the job that have made you think about whether it's a higher power or fate or determinism. Wow, that is really, really powerful. Um okay, so my next kind of inquiry, and I guess this sort of goes back to your first story. I was really curious to ask you about what are the roles that power plays in negotiation? So, you know, with that first story you told us about the husband and wife, you know, the power dynamic is kind of between them. But I'm almost more interested in, you know, your experience and the power dynamic between you and the um, person who's taking someone or themselves hostage, you know, whatever it is, that power dynamic between the two of you. I would really love to learn about that. Yeah. So when, when we would start negotiating with somebody, I mean, the first thing we would say, and again, understand that, you know, unlike a clinical practice where somebody comes in and says, hey, I'm here because I'm having a problem with my spouse or yes. boyfriend or mother or whatever it is. There were a lot of times we had no idea why we were here. Why did this person do this? Why are they barricaded? What, what's going on? Nobody knows. Yeah. You know, and so we're we're trying to figure this out. So the first thing we're going to do is try to establish a rapport, a relationship. So I'm not going to say, hi, I'm Terry Tucker, a sergeant with the Cincinnati Police Department. I'm just going to say, hey, I'm Terry. What's your name? Yes. And a lot of times it would be like, I don't want you to know my name. I'm not telling you my name. Okay. What would you like me to call you then? And so you're you're developing, you know, okay, call me Peanut. Okay, fine. I'll call you Peanut. Whatever you decide you want me to right. call you. And then we get into... Um, Basically, I guess let me sort of back up a little bit. When we started negotiating with somebody, 
think of a teeter-totter or a seesaw at Mm -hmm. the park. So their rational brain is way down on the ground, their emotional brain way up in the air. So really all we want to do is get them to burn off a lot of that emotional energy. So all it is initially is open-ended questions. Talk, 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 talk. So hopefully we get to a point where that teeter-totter is at equilibrium. And then at the end of the negotiation, hopefully their rational brain is way up in the air and their emotional brain is down in the ground because we all make better decisions when we use our rational brain as opposed to our emotional brain. So that's kind of where where we started and where we're we're trying to get to. So we're just asking open-ended questions and getting them to talk. And one of the big parts of what we did was be curious. Mm-hmm. And and that that was I think one of the biggest things about being a good negotiator you had to be curious you had to you had to be asking yourself why why is this happening you didn't want to use that word right but you could use it you could say it in another way how did yeah. we get here not why are we here yeah you know, how did we get to this point what got I really us? like that question I like that how did we get here question a lot yeah. I think that's really great yeah or you know it seems that you're mother is incredibly important to you or your spouse is incredibly important to you. Well, yeah. And and then they start talking. And so we would a lot of times do what was called, we we called it mirroring. I think today it's called parroting. Mm -hmm. And so basically you say the last three words that the person said back to them, but you say it in a kind of inquisitive voice. And then you, you use silence to your, to your benefit. We hate when there's silence. We do not like it when we're having a conversation. If I just stop talking and you stop talking, everybody's listening to us and be like, well, this yeah, is uncomfortable. Of yeah. So we would use that silence and that would get them to start talking again. They would fill the gaps. Like they, they would, would be the motivated gap. to fill the gaps. Exactly. Start talking again. Super. That's exactly what I want you to do. Right. And again, you know, once things calm down, there was, you know, we would get, you know, well, you better put a car out in front of my house because I'm going to drive away. You better, you better put a car out there in an hour or I'm going to, I'm going to shoot somebody. Deadlines. We never, deadlines almost never happen the way that is. And and we would, sometimes we would stop talking to the person. We would hang up. And then like five minutes before the deadline, we'd call them back and then Mm -hmm. just talk and we talk through the deadline. Mm-hmm. Things like that. So, so we would get deadlines. We never gave anything without getting something. So it'd be like, I, I want, I want, I'm hungry. I want a pizza. Okay. What are you going to give me? Right. What do you want? Give me your gun. Oh, I'm not giving you my gun. Give me a magazine out of your gun. Give me some bullets. I want a cigarette. Give me a bullet. I'll give yeah. you a cigarette. Yeah. You know, so it was, it was, they ultimately had the power. Right. Let's face it. I mean, they could have said, you got to come in and get me. Sometimes that happened. Yeah. But there were also 90% of the time we were successful at getting them out. 10% of the time they chose to take their own life. Mm-hmm. And a lot of times that was, like I said, if we're negotiating with somebody who just murdered three people, yeah. and they know they're going to prison for the rest of their life. They're like, yeah, I'm not doing that. Yeah. So I'll, I'll, I'll end it right now. Wow. And we would, we would let them think they had the power. Oh, absolutely. You know, we would, Sometimes be condescending, but we we knew what we were doing. They had no yes. idea what was going on. Right. They're they're in the chaos and they're in the emotion. And your job is to remain as rational as possible and provide that perspective or use that perspective to your advantage, I guess. Yeah. Like, well, they would say something. It's like, well, how am I supposed to do that? Mm-hmm. That's another one of those questions like, well, you just threw that out at me. 
I, I, I threw it right back at you. How am I supposed to do that? Yes. Now, now you're engaged to come up with a way that I can do that. But you're engaged in helping you get out safely. And, and that was our ultimate goal. Get you out safely. Get the We never lost a hostage. But like I said, we there were way too many people that ended up yeah. taking their own life. Yeah, that's very tragic. And uh, it sounds it sounds like a very intense role that you had for quite a while. Um, how did that just out of curiosity, how did that affect your own psychology and mental health? Yeah, I mean, again, work with great people. Um, yeah. The thing about, you know, it wasn't I didn't know this person. I didn't know this person from Adam. I never met any of the people I negotiated with. And so I wasn't emotionally invested in it where where negotiating got to be exhausting yes was when you had to get down and you did if you wanted to be good at this you had to get down in the weeds you had to get down in the mud with these people right i mean if somebody was like ranting and raving and yelling and screaming and you said or about their mother for example yeah and you said oh you seem a little upset with your mother no you totally missed it you totally missed it you had to go you sound like you're just pissed as hell at your mother. Right. Yeah, I am. Again, now we're developing trust. Now you yeah. get me. That empathy is there. And, and yeah. so that's why you, you had to get down in the weeds with these people. And you do this for four, five, six hours. You're exhausted when this was Oh, over. for sure. Uh, definitely. I can only imagine. Um, so what I would love to ask you about is, you know, you learn so much during your time negotiating and our listeners are having negotiations every single day in their relationships, whether it's familial relationships, romantic relationships, business relationships, how can our listeners have more successful negotiations in their relationships or operate more successfully in conflict? I think that the best way to, to develop a healthy relationship is, is, and again, it goes back to kind of what we were talking, is to have that that trust factor, that authentic, you know, I, I you, you, you mean what you say and you say what you mean. You know, you don't, you know, sort of walk in the walk and talk in the talk. If you're walking the walk or if you're talking the talk, but but your actions and even for me now, I, I mean, I'm in my 60s now and, and I don't care what you say. I want to see if what you say matches up with yes. what you do. And if it doesn't, I don't really want to spend a lot of time with you because you're not authentic, you're not real, you're not genuine. So just be honest with yourself. I, I was on a, a panel discussion on leadership communication a couple months ago, and I was on it with uh, a management psychologist from Greece. Mm -hmm. And the woman was talking about all these different, you know, like Myers-Briggs and anagrams and all these kind of things that people use. And she, and she made a great point, and I never thought about it this way. She said, you know, those things are great. Yeah. As long as you're honest when you answer yes. that this is really how I am, not how I want to be or not how I perceive myself to be. So she said, I always take those with a grain of salt and then go into the, the business and see how those people operate. Are you walking the walk based on what you said and things like that? So I, I guess I would say be genuine, be honest, be trustworthy, you know, and, 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 the games that people play, I and mean, I played them. I mean, you know, I had plenty of relationships in my life, things like that. You you play the games. You want people to think you're, this is the way I am. Well, 
it, you're not going to be able to do that very long if you're really not that way. You're, you're, exactly. You know, your your cover is sort of going to slip and that totally. kind of I, I want to be with people that are genuine. I want to be with people I can count on. And I also want to be with people that love me enough yeah. to tell me the truth. Oh, yeah. You know what, Connie? You're kind of screwing up. Or you know yeah. what, Terry? Man, you're making a bad decision here. You know, I love you. I'm telling you that. But what do we do? When when that happens, what we do is we all of a sudden it's like, no, that person isn't my friend. You know, they're not seeing eye to eye with me. No. Yeah. Oh, it's, it's such a need in our lives. The people are such willing a knee-jerk reaction. Relationship yeah, because they I love really, you so much. They're willing to tell you the truth. I, I really am on the same page with that. You know, I, I see a lot of people who react and very, and you know, it's normal to get defensive if someone sits you down and says a certain amount of defensiveness is normal. But I always say, you know, to friends, to family, or even to to different people that I meet, I'm like, whoever's honest with you in your life, that's who really loves you. That's who's going to, that's who really cares. Whoever's telling you something that might not be so flattering or who might be trying to make you look at yourself, holding up a mirror and, you know, um, kind of asking you to reflect. That's who really cares. I am on the same page, Terry. Absolutely. And, you know, we're almost out of time, but I do want to ask you before we go, how did your family or your close relationships feel about you working in this, you know, sometimes dangerous role? Did you, you know, was your family and your relationship supportive of that? They were. I, you know, when when my wife married me, I was a, a suit and tie, eight to five, Monday through Friday, hospital administrator. Right. And I, I, I remember saying to her when we were living in California, I, I started out as a reserve police officer with the city of Santa Barbara. You know, I got this circular in the mail and it was, you know, if you take this class, you can apply to any agency within the state. And and you can imagine that conversation at dinner. We, you know, we've been married a couple of years and right. I'm like, Hey, hon, uh, I, I kind of like to do this. What do you think? Yeah. And she was like, well, take the course. And, yeah. and I did. And I got on with Santa Barbara. So I would work my regular job all week. Then Friday night, I would come home, put on my uniform, go to roll call and work wow. all night as a police officer. And I would come home Saturday morning. And, and she would tell you this. If she was sitting here. She said, you would have this incredible grin on your face. Aww. You would be exhausted, but you would have you this incredible it. grin. And then when our daughter was born and we moved to Cincinnati, I said to her, look, I, I, the, I've been bitten by the bug. I want to do this full time. And wow. she, she supported me. She absolutely positively supported me. And then when she lost her job in Cincinnati, we had to move to Houston. I had to support her. I had to get out of law enforcement because, uh, you know, it, she was always the primary breadwinner. And yeah. it's like that's OK. I can do something else. It's not I love what I do, but it's not who I am. Got it. That, and that's a great way to look at it. And, you know, my last question for you. On a more sensitive matter, you battled cancer for 10 years. You're battling it now. What role do the relationships in your life play, your wife's support or other close relationships? You know, how important is it to have that support, those relationships, that love at this difficult time? It's incredibly important. I, I would I would be dead many times over had it not been for my for my family. I I, mm. I, I sort of talk about my three Fs, which are faith, family, and friends. I have a very deep faith in God. And, you know, I I think God has gotten me through so many different things, should have been dead a a couple of times. But the family part of it is is so interesting. And and I'll give you a a kind of a quick story. So so my, after I had my leg amputated in 2020, and I found out I had these tumors in my lungs, my doctor wanted to start me on chemotherapy. Mm -hmm. And I looked at him and I said, is is it going to save my life? 
it's like, no, but it might buy you some more time. Right. I was eight years into this fight. Right. I said, well, I don't think I want to do it, but I'll go home and talk to my family. So it's just my wife and daughter and I. So I go home, start telling them what's going on. My daughter's immediately like, wait, oh, wait a minute. We need a family meeting. I'm like, family meeting? There's three of us. It's not like we got a board yeah. here or something like yeah. that. you know. So we sit around the kitchen table and individually talk about how we feel about me having chemotherapy. And then when that's done, my daughter's like, all right, let's take a vote. How many people want dad to have chemotherapy? And my wife and daughter raise her hand. I'm like, wait a minute. Am I getting what? outvoted? You're getting outvoted. <laughs> Am I getting outvoted for something I don't want to do? But I remembered when I was back in the police academy, our defensive tactics instructor used to have us bring a photograph of the yeah. people we love the most to class. And yeah. as we were learning different techniques to defend ourselves, we were to look at that photograph because he reasoned you will fight harder for the people you love than you will fight for yourself. Wow. So I took chemotherapy, not because I wanted to, but because my family did. And in hindsight, it was a bridge that got me to the drug I'm on now which is keeping me stable. So that's the family part. And then friends. I think the interesting thing about friends is there were people that I thought absolutely positively would be in the foxhole with me, you know, would, mm-hmm. would never abandon me, would never. And and, and some of them did. Some yeah. of them like, I can't deal with this. You know, I was yeah. 51 years old when I was diagnosed. It's like, I can't deal with you. You're too wow. young. You're, no. And then there were people who I never thought would be there for me, who have been there for me you know, 11 years now, you know, through this, through this journey. So it's, you know, again, but those are the people who will walk the walk and talk the talk with me and tell me, no, Terry, you're an idiot. You shouldn't do that. Okay. Thanks. I know you love me. That's why you're saying that. Wow. Terry Tucker, you are incredible. Thank you so much for coming on the Velvet Podcast. I can't wait for our listeners to hear this. So many great lessons, so much wisdom. I'm so appreciative to you. Thank you for sharing all that wisdom with us. Well, Connie, thanks for having me on. I really enjoyed talking with you. Thank you all so much for tuning in and listening to this episode of the Velvet Podcast. Relationships are what we are promoting here, ladies and gentlemen. So that means go to www.vlvtapp.com. That's www.velvetapp.com and sign up to our wait list. You heard how integral close relationships are to Terry, to his survival to his life, to all of the trials and tribulations that he has been through, is continuing to go through. It's crucial you have a good support system around you no matter what you're going through in life. And your close relationships are a huge part of that. So start fostering and nourishing and growing yours. Start looking for yours today by joining our waitlist at www.velvetapp.com. And I mean, you heard what Terry said about tactical training in the FBI, and keeping in mind that you will always fight harder for those around you that you love than you will even fight for yourself. What a powerful message to end off this episode, and what a powerful message to take with you into your lives as you walk through your lives. Yet another real endorsement for why our tech is so, so important to your health, to your longevity, to your quality of life. So spread the word, tell everyone, join the wait list. We're waiting for you all. We're waiting for you. Come join us and tune in next week.